Today, of all days, we wanted to share with you the story of what happened to Jesus. And his story is the greatest story. It's the ultimate story. And his big story gives life and hope to all of our smaller ones. So today we'd like to simply walk you through each part of the death and resurrection of Christ using our own words. On this Good Friday, we're going to tell you the story of that day. And later on, on Easter, we're going to share with you part two. Now today we have four different presenters and each person will tell you one part of the story of Jesus and then reflect on what that scene means to them personally. Four different presenters, one unified story. And with each personal reflection, we're all pretty much saying the same thing. When Jesus died, we died too. And when Jesus rose, we did too. His story gives life and hope to all of our smaller ones. And so today, we're just going to keep the main thing the main thing. We'd simply like to tell you the story of Jesus. And we'd like to show you how that story has shaped each one of our lives. Now, as all humankind started in a garden, the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus started in a garden as well. So here is how that story goes. In the Garden of Agony with Jesus, based on Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. It was night. Jesus left the upper room accompanied by his disciples and went as usual to a garden of olive trees called Gethsemane. He told them, sit here while I go over there to pray. You pray that you won't give into temptation. He took Peter, James, and John with him and soon plunged into an agonizing sorrow that pierced his entire body. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He walked away from them, found a quiet space and fell to the ground. He prayed if it were possible, he might be able to find some way out of the awful hour awaiting him. Abba, Father, he cried out. Nothing is impossible for you. If there is any way, please get me out of this. Even still, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep, exhausted from grief. He said to Peter, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? Look out and pray so that you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup of suffering cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they could not keep their eyes open and they did not know what to say. So he went to pray a third time more fervently saying the same things again. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. When he returned to the disciples, he said, are you gonna sleep all night? Look, the time has come. The son of man is about to be handed over into the hands of sinners. Get up, it's time to go. 
my betrayer is here. When I read this passage, what stands out to me is Jesus's fervent and honest prayer to God the Father. I hear the desperation in Jesus's voice. Some of you may know that my husband Daniel and I had a COVID impacted wedding and decided to elope about seven months ago. Even though the decision to get married without our friends and parents was tough, I would say our dating and engagement journey was far more challenging. My parents, especially my dad, had a lot of doubts about our relationship and there were a lot of painful conversations that left me feeling hurt, angry and resentful. I remember praying daily with so much pain when Daniel and I were dating and thinking about engagement. I asked God to guide us in our decision-making, to know how best to honor our parents and to show us if this relationship was even in his will. There were times I felt so overwhelmed and lonely, but I also remember that God drew near to me. I remember feeling that God cared about how I felt and wanted relationship with me, not just my blind obedience. I see this in Jesus's prayer to Abba Father. The way that Jesus cries out to his father is a reflection of the trust and security in their relationship. To express intimate needs while also trusting in God's ultimate goodness and shalom. In my own prayers, it wasn't until I could be completely honest about my wants, fears, and insecurities that I could fully surrender my own desires. In response, I felt God acknowledging all my emotions, saying, you could make this decision based on your own will, but if you trust me, I can show you the larger plan of healing, genuine relationship, sacrificial love, and forgiveness I want for you and your family. It's still a journey for me, but I'm comforted by Jesus who demonstrates through his prayer that God sees our pain and remains trustworthy and good. I think the relationship Jesus has with the Father is what allows him to endure the pain of what's to come. His betrayal, arrest, and trial, based on Mark 14, verses 43 through 15, verse 5. Now Jesus, who had spent hours in prayer, had just been speaking to his disciples about preparing for the hour of temptation, and now... The hour of his crisis and theirs had finally arrived. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, came up accompanied by a mob. What a sight this must have been. Like an angry witch hunt, people streaming out of Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane. There were the chief priests and Pharisees accompanied by the temple police and a sizable crowd of Jews all armed with torches, swords, and even clubs, following the lead of none other than Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. Can you even imagine? Betrayed by one of his very own. Betrayed by one of those twelve chosen men who had spent so much time with Jesus, who had preached and healed and cast out spirit in his name, whom he had loved dearly as his own brother. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus, greeting him warmly as if it were any other day and planting a kiss on his cheek, the seal of his betrayal. And immediately they grabbed Jesus and arrested him on the spot. At that moment, the scripture says that all his disciples deserted him and ran away. Not one remained. Not one stood by him. Not one. And there Jesus was 
completely alone, betrayed by his own people and abandoned by his closest friends. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to where the elders and teachers of the law were waiting. There they had tried to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Witness after witness spoke false accusations against him. And yet through it all, Jesus remained silent and made no reply or defense. Then finally, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the, and the blessed one? And with a gentle yet powerful authority in his voice, Jesus spoke the words, I am. Upon hearing these words, they declared him guilty of claiming to be like God and deserving of death. Spitting on his face, they beat him with their fists and mocked him again and again. All the while, Peter followed them at a distance, silently witnessing the injustice of Jesus' arrest, attempting to make sense of everything that had just taken place before him. As he sat in the courtyard, straining to see what was happening to his beloved master, one of the several girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and pointed her finger at him saying, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. In a reactionary, patter, reactionary panic, Peter denied it. What? I don't know what you're talking about, he said. She left about her business. The servant girl returned to see him standing there. So she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter, fearful of being associated with Jesus, fearful of what might happen to him, denied it quickly once again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. And for the third time, Peter swore with all his might, curse me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And the rooster crowed at that very moment, as if time stood still, Jesus turned and looked at Peter with eyes of sorrowful compassion. The pain of this betrayal piercing through Peter's heart as the Lord's words suddenly flashed through his mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even knew me. And as the truth of those words came to pass, sinking in that he indeed betrayed the Lord, Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly in shame and remorse. And Jesus was left completely alone. For those of you who know me, you know that I moved around growing up and even lived overseas. I was bullied in middle school for being American. I felt isolated. And for five or six years, I didn't feel like I had any true friends. I know what it's like to be alone. But what I relate to most in this story is Peter's guilt and shame. When I was in fourth grade, I lied to my teacher about losing an essay. I supposedly wrote it by hand. I had procrastinated it and procrastinated it, and I just never wrote it. I lied, and I never told my parents. When my report card came, my teacher referred to my missing assignment, and I was so ashamed, I hid my report card from my parents so they never saw it. I don't think they know to this day. I was in fourth grade. This was almost two decades ago. And yet to this day, I'm still haunted by something that ultimately doesn't even matter. And now if we go back to Peter, can you imagine the guilt and the shame? Peter, a man of bluster and brashness. Peter, who, would have, who said he would stick with Jesus to the death. Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church. But it went, when it came down to it, he ran. He ran and denied even knowing Jesus. The guilt and shame of letting someone down. I feel that to my core. I've made promises to my friends and family and I've let them down. I've lied and I've cheated. I've gotten angry and yelled at people. 
and every time I'm racked with guilt and shame. How could I betray the people I love like that? I'm scared to face them. And what astounds me is remembering that that lonely boy when I was living overseas in middle school, I responded by hating the world. I thought that people were evil. I cast them off. I wanted nothing to do with them. I hardened my heart against the world and everyone in it. How did Jesus respond after being betrayed and left alone? He had the whole world against him. He was abandoned and betrayed by his best friends, friends that had promised to stand by him. There's Peter sitting in his grief and shame, unable to look at his Lord anymore. Jesus had every reason to cut them off. But, what, but when Jesus looks on Peter, he isn't angry. He looks on with nothing but love and compassion for a man who has lost himself. He has mercy on Peter. Jesus would always welcome Peter back into the fold. Even in his betrayal and abandonment, Jesus never was never vindictive or seeking punishment for his betrayers, but knowingly walks the path God laid out for him for the good of us all. Sentence to death based on Mark 15, verses 6 to 20. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner. It could be any prisoner that the people requested. I mean, this was their one chance to let Jesus go, to, to turn back and to make everything right again. And so Pilate asks them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? I mean, inside, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that the chief priests had arrested Jesus not for committing any actual crime, but merely out of their own envy and self-interest. So he offered them a choice, the release of Jesus or the release of Barabbas, a well-known criminal who was imprisoned for murder in a rebellion against Rome. The choice could not have been more clear-cut. A high-profile killer who was unquestionably guilty or a teacher and miracle worker who was undeniably innocent. But the crowd chose wrong. We want Barabbas, they shouted. And shocked at the request, Pilate asked them, what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? I have found no guilt in him. And in a fit of rage, they shouted back, Crucify him! Pilate pleaded again, almost with compassion in his voice. Why? What has he done wrong? What crime has he committed? I have found nothing deserving of death. But his questions were quickly drowned out by the piercing shouts of the mob's cries roaring louder and louder. Crucify him! Crucify him! The crowd was going crazy and getting out of control. Their voices rising in hostility, their demand that Jesus be crucified, insistent and unrelenting. And Pilate, helpless and backed into a corner, with no other options, gave in and released him. Just as he gave the people the prisoner that they wanted, he gave them the crucifixion that they wanted as well. 
at his command, Jesus was flogged with the leather-tipped whip over and over again. His skin ripped open, his back dripping with blood after each lash that struck his body again and again and again. Enough for him to feel the torture, but not quite enough to kill him and put him out of his misery. And as they led him away to be crucified, they brought him into the courtyard and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And there was Jesus in the middle of it all, surrounded by those who wanted him dead, but for whom he ultimately came to die. And they began to strip him of any clothes that he was wearing, as if they didn't do enough to strip him of his dignity already. And they thought it would be so clever to put a purple robe on him. Purple, the color reserved for royalty, for this supposed king, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and forced it upon his head. And they put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him, taunting, Hail, King of the Jews. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe, they put his clothes back on him again, and they led him away to be crucified. We live in a world where we're taught to believe in justice seeking what's right and what's fair. I mean, you can imagine when kids say, you know, it's not fair, it's not fair. I mean, <laughs> it starts from a young age, right? And I was like that too. When I was in high school, uh, just about to enter high school, I had to take a summer course. And, you know, this was kind of the first time in my life that I was stepping out of my Christian bubble. A few weeks in, I somehow found myself, you know, with my own personal bully. Um, for some reason, this kid just zeroed in on me, the, the, the quietest person in the class. And every day, he would come in and he would make jokes about me and my glasses and my eyes and my appearance and my Asianness and literally anything that he could attack, he did it. He would constantly point at me and laugh and call me names that I will not repeat here. He'd make racist jokes left and right and get his friends to laugh at me. And the sad part is that no one seemed to do anything and, and nothing seemed to be able to stop him. And I remember going home every day that summer with so much anger and so much bitterness in my heart towards this boy. You know, it wasn't fair. It, it wasn't right. All I could think about was this terrible person before me. And all I wanted was justice. All I wanted was for him to pay the consequences of what he did. When I look at the story that we just read, I think, I, I think the same thing that I thought back then. It wasn't fair. What would have been fair by our definitions? You know what was supposed to happen? The bad guy was supposed to die. Barabbas was supposed to pay the penalty of his sins, of his crimes. 
that mocking, the beating, the whipping that Jesus went through, that was reserved for Barabbas. That He deserved that. And yet he was spared. It's not fair. The scriptures don't say much about his internal perspective, but I just imagine myself being in his shoes. I mean, imagine having done such horrific things and you know it. And then you simply being told that you're free to go. All of your crimes, your, your sins, your mistakes wiped clean in a matter of seconds. But soon you would walk out of these prison doors free as a new person with a clean slate and a second chance. Why? It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And then someone tells you about the other guy. Jesus, completely innocent, a much better man than you ever were and would ever be. The one who did nothing wrong. The good guy in this story that everyone roots for. He took your place. You lived because he took your place. He paid the price of your sin. Friends, we, we don't need to imagine. Because the truth is, I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. We all are Every single one of us a sinner. Every single one guilty before God and deserving of death. A lot of the times we do ourselves that way. I mean, we, we read the story and we think, I'm not that bad. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a robber. I mean, I sin a little bit here or there, but overall I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And we don't see ourselves in Barabbas. We don't see ourselves in the bully and yet we were, we are. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned against him. And you know what? If we got justice by our standards, if we truly got what was fair in the world's eyes, the story wouldn't have gone the way that it did. But God in his great love and mercy and grace for us fulfilled that demand for justice himself. He took the place as a substitute on that cross to forgive us of our sins, to free us from condemnation, and to give us new life in him. It's because of this that God changed my heart that summer. And I started to be really nice to this guy. When he needed a pen, I was the first one to volunteer. When he needed $5 to buy a soda, I pulled out my wallet. And at the end of the summer, he came up to me and he said, I was so mean to you this summer. I'm so bad. Why are you so nice to me? And I simply said, because I was just as bad as you. But Jesus died for my sins. And he died for yours too. In church tonight, he died for yours.